Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. So as we uh, continue our Fearless Life series today, we've been talking about two themes in 1 John. They are the themes of the book, uh, of the letter, how love drives out all fear and how love and joy in our life are made complete. So as I was preparing for today, I began to think about all the love songs out there because we love our love songs, don't we? We love the booming ballad of Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You. We love the Beatles, All You Need Is Love. We love the Supremes, Stop in the Name of Love. We've got all sorts of songs where our culture tries to capture love and what it means to love and the importance and the pursuit of love. And it doesn't hurt that our culture makes a bazillion dollars off of that endeavor, too. And uh, there's actually, you know, the Frozen has, actually has a song, uh, Love is an Open Door. I'm a testament to the fact that that is not always true. Love was not an open door for me with Wendy. The first time I asked her out, the conversation went like, can we go out Friday? No. Can we go out Saturday? No. I was persistent enough. I had to ask three times before the door cracked open. We went out to church together on Sunday. We even have deep theology represented in love songs like Meatloaf's song. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Or Nat King Cole's Unforgettable, the better, more epic version of how memorable and impactful love can be in your life as compared to Willie Nelson's You're Always on My Mind. And then there is Charlie Robbins' love song, You Are Not the Best, But the Best That I Can Do. In which he sings that the pretty girls will always leave you crying and the ugly girls will leave you too, but who cares? So I'll just settle for you. That's such, such a great bar to set for love. I mean, come on. Love is something we long for and it can also drive us crazy. And so Queen captured that in a crazy little thing called love. And I think maybe the best love song from, of all is Boston's More Than a Feeling. Boston, I think, gets it more than most. Because, frankly, if love is defined as just feelings or romantic attraction, which are all byproducts of love, we miss the depth of what love is. A central theme in 1 John is, how is love made complete in us? And that's going to be our focus today. And we're going to look at some of the Scripture verses we've looked at over the last couple of weeks and expand on those and some additional verses as well. But imagine again for me to get back into this John, Jesus' closest friend, now a very old man, 90 years old, coming to share one last time with you before he dies. And he writes this in 1 John 4. He says, Dear friends, Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. It's kind of one of those, drop the mic, those are just straight, forward, kind of hard words. Whoever does not love does not know God. Wow. That's really blunt and honest. 
And I think it elicits for us a main question that we're going to deal with today. Is God's love growing in you? Are you more loving today than you were yesterday, than last year, than four years ago, than ten years ago? If you are growing in love, John says, if you are not growing in love, sorry, John says, you are not following God. And John is not saying to us that we have to be loving in order to earn our salvation as we continue to follow God, though he is saying we should see signs, we should see evidence, and that evidence should be each of us growing in loving other people more and better. Why? Because whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Everything we know about love is based on who God is. Love is not something separate from God like, a, like an entity or an emotion or a set of behavioral or moral principles. God is love. We have to look at God for us to even begin to define and understand what love truly is. John goes, for, uh, goes forward and, uh, to define more precisely what love is, love is saying this in verse 9. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. And God sent his only son into the world. So John is saying, Jesus is the manifestation of God among us, the touchable, seeable, hearable, observable, tangible person of God. Love, real love, is also certainly more than a feeling because God sent. Therefore, love intentionally is something that initiates action. Love doesn't wait for other people to act. Love initiates action even before the feeling, even before getting anything back, before the other person responds or does their part. The passage goes on in verse 10 and says, God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, so what does love look like? How does that add to that definition? It's, it's this way. Love intentionally initiates self-sacrificial action. See, this is the big idea of John's entire letter, that if self-sacrificing love is not at the core of our being, consistently growing stronger in us, then God is not in us, and we are not actually following God. You can say you believe in Jesus, you can say you are a Christian, but if there is no evidence of growing in love, John, a few verses later in verse 20, puts it even more bluntly by saying, whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. If growing love is not evidenced, then you're deceiving yourself and you're living a lie. What John is saying, it is inconceivable that you can encounter the love and grace of God and not be changed by it. Again, John's not saying that you have to do all these loving actions in order to be saved. He's not saying that you have to be good enough and self-sacrificial enough to be saved. Why? Because God loved us first in sending Jesus and salvation is simply our receiving of that love that Jesus initiated to us first and responding to it by committing our lives to growing in and becoming more like Jesus every day. And we know that's going to be a lifetime worth of growth. 
See, the intent of John writing this letter is to give us all confidence and assurance that we are following God, that we're actually on the right path. So let's jump back to verse 11 where John goes on and says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Because if God is love, we ought to do the same, right? So allow me to go quickly on kind of an attached rabbit trail. The Achilles heel of secularism in America, atheism, philosophical naturalism, whatever term you use to to talk about that, is that it is a worldview that without God cannot provide a reason for the ought to love one another. Almost everyone says that love is a good thing. And almost every secular person I know is a loving person. But philosophically, they can't provide the ought for love. Their worldview provides no solid reason for good, for right, for love. And those are not just my words. Those are the words of the greatest minds who are secular, naturalists, materialists, determinists, whatever, of the secular atheism idea. If we evolved by natural processes, they would point out, why ought we to love? I mean, survival of the fittest in mere biology, if it dictates everything, why would we ever sacrifice for anyone or show grace to anyone? I mean, some would say, well, that's because we would do that because it's best for the species. But, but that's not an ought. That's simply a fancy form of self-interest. That's not love. By sheer force of logic, if I become convinced, if I believe that view, that killing you would be better for my survival and, or other people's survival, and I'm stronger than you, then, then there's nothing keeping me from doing that. And certainly people who are secular and atheists are moral and can be moral without God, but their belief structure, their life's guiding philosophy does not support that morality while in fact their experience and their argument for love and morality actually logically leads them to look beyond biology and naturalism to God. As Christians, we say we ought to love. Why? Because that's who God is. And as the creator of all that exists, that desire, that drawing, that ought is woven into the very fabric of all of creation. We can ignore it, we can act unlovingly and do evil, but it is still there. So that's the end of the rabbit trail. If God is love, we will do the same, John is saying. And the Bible primarily uses four different words for love uh, that fall into kind of three different categories. It's much more nuanced in the Greek language than English. One, One of the words is eros, and it's a word which we get erotic from. It's the strong desire, it's a romantic, sexual, emotive word based purely on feelings. And eros is a conditional love. When you look when, when you look a certain way and make me feel a certain way, I love the way you make me feel. That's, that's kind of what that is. Phileo and storge are two other words used for kind of in the same category, brotherly or familial love. In fact, you'll recognize phileo. It's the basis of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And that's a word that's more of a, I love you because... Be, because of what you do for me, be, because you're part of my family, because you're in my circle of friends, because I scratch your back and you scratch my back kind of a love. 
And then there's the word agape, which is a word used here by John to talk about God's love, and it's the word he's inviting every Christian to live through, and it is an unconditional love. God loves regardless of whether you reciprocate that love. God loves regardless of what we do. It is a love in spite of you kind of an idea of love. See, John continues and he asks us to bolster, he's seeking to bolster our confidence and give us clarity saying in verse 16, we know and rely on the love of God that he has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And he goes on and says, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. And here it is. In this world, we are like Jesus. Love is only fully experienced, only complete when we love others like Jesus. Certainly throughout this letter now, uh, he's talking to believers and how they love one another. And, and like when he says in 1 John 3, which we read a few weeks ago, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And he says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. To love with Actions is for everyone, and, and Jesus certainly loved his followers and his friends really well. But in that previous verse, verse 11, or John says, in this world, what he's communicating there is this temporary time frame. We won't be here forever. This is not our eternal state of being that we live in right now. In this world, we are like Jesus. So it begs the question, how was Jesus in this world? What was his primary mission in this world? Well, in Jesus' own words, his primary mission was to seek and save the lost. There's only one thing we can do now in this life that we can't do in eternity, and that is to seek and save the lost. It was the primary focus of Jesus' love, and it's if we truly follow Jesus in becoming like him, it is a growing primary focus of how your and my love will grow and be expressed. So late last year, Jeremy shared a video expressing what God was doing in his heart as he was praying for Quest. And one major question he sensed God asking was, as our community continues to change, are we willing to love those who are unwanted or maybe neglected among us. Jeremy, Wendy and I were talking about this recently, and I'll admit I was, uh, I was struggling. I was a little bit discouraged of how we as a church can identify and be more effective at identifying and engaging the neighborhoods around us and then meeting the needs in our community. And I, I started thinking about some of my friends who are pastoring and urban areas where the needs are more obvious and at least initially much easier to engage with. And, and those friends are seeing many, many people come to faith in Jesus. And, and I remember back to when Wendy and I and our family were part of one of those churches like that. And the, the prayer needs were so much different than ours on a regular basis. And Wendy remembers one day a woman coming up to her after service and asking for prayer. And, and, and her question for prayer was, I need to know whether I should prostitute myself this week in order to feed my children or not. Tough issues. Desperate need for Jesus was clearly seen. 
And yet Jeremy reminded me of what I know, what I know is true, but it so easily gets lost, I think, for all of us. He said to me, look, look where we are. We live in suburbia. The cry of, the, of suburbia is different than the urban setting. It, it, it may be softer. It may be dressed up a little nicer, covered over with nicer things, but the cry is still there. And then he went on to share how he's building a relationship with the friends at the bus stop and at his kids' game and how those relationships are getting to the point of, of trust where they can talk about really honest needs and, and conversations and even about faith in a, in a just a friendly, honest way. And, and the truth about the softer cry of suburbia is so many people around us are going through, you, you could name almost any difficulty, but, but let's just use the example of marital difficulties that you would never know. And they think they're alone in those struggles. They think everyone else is doing well and everyone else is doing as happy because all they see is the happy faces on Facebook and all they hear is when they ask you how you're doing is, I'm fine, I couldn't be better kind of statements, right? But at home, they're feeling the disconnect between them and the person they love struggling with communication and parenting disagreements and work-life balance and stress and anxiety and, 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 and with need. We are getting lonelier as a culture, especially in suburbia. The General Social Survey found that the number of Americans with no close friends has tripled since 1985. Zero is the most common number of confidants reported by almost a quarter of the people surveyed. Likewise, the average number of people that Americans feel they have, that they can talk to about important matters has fallen from three down to two on average. And surprisingly, loneliness is most prevalent, according to the studies, among millennials. We know there's need. They want community. They need genuine relationships that are safe. See, where they can talk openly and receive and support, receive support and encouragement and, and to love with self-sacrificial love. Do we want to be a part of loving like that in our community? I think the answer is a resounding yes for all of us. Allow me to take you through a quick kind of experience test that will kind of test this. If you... If you would, I'd like you to close your eyes. And as I mentioned a bunch of names, I want you to get in touch with whether you are centered in God's love for them by your heart response. Is your heart response a stronger sense of love that wells up within you when I mention a name, or is it a, or is it a stronger sense of negative because of what you've heard about these people I'm going to talk about? And I understand something. I didn't pass this test. None of us are probably going to pass this test. That's not the point. So here's the first name, the Kardashians. How do you feel in your heart about them? What about Oprah? How do you feel in your heart about Kim Jong-un? Or Andy Stanley? What about Barack Obama? Or Donald Trump? How about Tom Brady? Okay, Patriots fans, no, no yelling right now. <laughs> what about Tim Tebow? 
or Ronald Reagan? Go ahead and open your eyes. Now, what probably just happened is that the ones you like, you probably had this kind of big warm feeling start to pop up in your heart going, I love Tim Tebow, I I love Reagan, Reaganomics, the wall coming down, the Cold War ending, oh, 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 for the good old days, right? And then there are people like Trump and Obama who, depending on your background, you may either love or hate. What John is trying to teach us and what Jesus models for us is that there shouldn't be a change in our response based upon what we heard or feel about someone. Whether I mention, when, when I mention a name, whether you go, ooh, or oh, or yeah, shouldn't make a difference in our words that we speak about someone or in our actions. If there's a place inside of you that immediately went to a laundry list of negatives and offenses and what these people are not, then you know there's something inside of you that is still not operating out of the love that Jesus and John are inviting us to in this text and commanding us to grow in as followers of Jesus. On the other hand, if you felt sentimental or positive towards someone, one of these names, you might need to learn to take that same type of a feel and choose to apply that same type of feeling and whatever your actions are towards that person, towards the people you have a negative response to. Because Jesus says he didn't, he came to save the whole world. He didn't come to condemn. He came to show extravagant, self-sacrificial love in pursuing even the worst of sinners that they'd be saved. Jesus didn't have a different approach to people based on their behavior, based on how right or wrong, offensive or easy their beliefs were for him to stomach. Jesus didn't look at the world and say, well, that segment of people over there, the, the, you know, the North Koreans, the, the Iranians, the Pakistanis, the Taliban, I, I, well, I didn't come for them. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to avoid them because they're, they're really hard for me. They drain me. They scare me. They, they tire me out. They anger me. See, there are very few people, I think, who hold popular figures whether celebrities or politicians or athletes, in their their heart in a balanced way because they are so sensationalized and so much rumor mill and soundbiting goes on. Reactionary attitudes in us come from a lack of love. We freak out over a Supreme Court decision or an election or a celebrity's highly publicized agenda that violates our sense of decency or morals and It's an evidence that we still lack love, that we fear more than we love. And fear always leads us to negativity and to reaction. Perfect love, John says, casts out all fear. I heard a story this past week that I think concisely illustrates this. It was shared by Sean Boltz, a Christian pastor and author who planted a large church in the Hollywood area. He was sharing a story of how he was getting ready to go to a conference to hear one of his favorite well-known Christian speakers and really looking forward to that. And at the same time, he, he, he was sharing how excited he was because of one of his friends who had just told him a really cool personal story. 
So this friend of his was an entertainment manager who had come to faith in Christ about a year earlier and had been a drug addict but had become clean since coming to faith in Jesus. And and during that year, this friend had let go of some of the music clients because there was too much drugs in the culture and he couldn't be around it while he was getting clean. And one of whom, of his clients, was a a well-known, famous pop star that everybody would recognize the name, but we're not going to say the name. After a year, he finally went to one of her concerts to reconnect and kind of say hello again. And afterwards, he was invited backstage. And over on one side of the room, there was all the drug partying going on. And, 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 and he found her over on the other side of the room. And she invited him to come over there and talk away from that. And she kind of said to him, hey, what, what's going on? Uh, you're usually in the middle of the party. She was shocked. He wasn't over there doing drugs with everyone else. And he noticed she wasn't doing that either. And he replied, well, this is going to sound cliche, but I met Jesus. I've been sober for a year and I'm the happiest I've ever been. And she said to him, I knew something profound had happened. You need to tell me what's happened. And he went on to share all about all the changes and how he came to faith in Christ and the changes since becoming a Christian. And and at the, and towards the end, she says, well, this is the most real, authentic, spiritual journey I've ever heard. And then she went on to say this. She says, I am on a spiritual journey myself, and I'm not ready to become a Christian yet. But would you pray for me that I would encounter God in the same way you have? And in that moment, they stopped and they prayed and they cried together and continued to talk a little more. So fast forward to the conference Sean was at with this very well-known speaker and and he was amazing and the message was great and doing better all the time. And then all of a sudden the speaker got to a point in his message where he said, this is, he said, well, there's this very well-known, and he named the pop singer that we were just talking about just a minute ago. And the speaker went on to rail on her about how she was responsible for the immorality of the younger generation. And God was going to judge her. And Sean's sitting in the audience going, no, no, she's pursuing God. And, and when you say this, you're big enough known that everybody's going to tweet this out and she's going to hear and she's going to think God and Christians hate her. That's when Sean felt like God spoke to him and and said, you'll never have the authority to influence those you don't love. I've been thinking about that statement and how it applies to my life as well as the church. Could it be that we, the church, are having less authority and less ability to influence our culture because we lack a complete full love like John and Jesus are inviting us to. As the church, it's so easy for us to see where the enemy is at and and how people are failing. It's so easy for us to point out the darkness. But we are to be, John teaches us, with the image of darkness and light, we are to be preoccupied with the light. And that makes darkness seem small. It's not that we don't have clear ideas about what the Bible teaches and what's right and what's wrong, but, but if the gospel is good news, what is the good news people around us are hearing? The church is more often known for what we're against than what we are for. And yet, when Jesus saw people, he saw what they were originally designed to be. 
He saw them as though the person had been following him their entire life and been perfect and never sinned. That, and he saw that as the potential for everyone he met. That's how Jesus sees us, loves us. And that's what he draws on in each of us. See, this focus applies to even how we think about church as well. Much of our focus so often in our own personal discipleship and growing in Jesus is for us to overcome something, to overcome our our sin, which is important. But Jesus sets for us a higher goal. He wants us to focus on becoming something, not just overcoming something. See, Jesus knew the frustrating, the negative things about his disciples and the people he interacted with every day. And he would challenge them from time to time. But most of his focus was on helping people know who they were truly created to be and who they were becoming instead of what they were not. How many times do others need to hear from each of us that we don't agree with them? How many times do people need to point out, do we need to point out to someone that they're sinning, that they're, they've messed up again, saying, stop it, stop doing that? You know, see, what people need to hear even more from us clearly is that there's still hope, that God has so much for you, and God is so much in love with you and wants you to experience that. In the midst of evil, God is good. So this week when we look at others, especially those who are difficult and frustrating for us. What do you see? Do you see who God is calling them to be and focusing? Are you focusing and praying and acting loving toward that? Or are you focused on what they are not and becoming negative and critical and frustrated? Jesus' lesson and John's lesson for us is you won't have authority to influence those you don't love. Because whoever does not love does not know God. So is God's love growing in you this week? Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, we are just so thankful that you love us like that, that you send Jesus as touchable, tangible to show us how radically You are unconditional in your love to us. That Jesus can stand before us and say, I didn't come to condemn, but I came to save. That Jesus can pursue us even in our darkest moments and be there. Lord, we are so grateful. Father, would you forgive me? Would you forgive us? And would you take the negativity that so easily creeps in and would you allow us to be the most honoring, loving, most positive about the potential of other people around us, the most gracious in our words and our actions so that, Father, the love you want for us would be complete and we would walk into the completeness of joy of that but also, Lord, so that our whole community, our city, our state, our nation, those in Russia, that they would know that kind of love. And we would have the joy of seeing the lost 
found, the hurting healed. The desperate find hope. So Lord, I ask that you pour your spirit out on each and every one of us that we would be that people. And Lord, right now as we turn to you, we give you praise and we worship you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.